1799, a little guy by the name of Conrad Reed, living there in North Carolina, he was a farm boy, grew up on a farm, but he and his brothers were out fishing in Little Meadow Creek, and they found a rock the size of a shoe. It was heavy. And little Conrad thought, man, I want to take this thing home and show it to my dad. So on their way home, as they, after they were done fishing, they got home and he runs in to show his dad his new treasure. And his dad was really intrigued by his find. He wondered if there was any value in this stone. And so he took it to the silversmith in Conrad, who very quickly just dismissed it as a rock, not having any value whatsoever. And so Farmer Reed took that, that big rock and he used it for the next three years as a doorstop in his house. It was probably the most expensive doorstop That there ever was, because after three years, they discovered that this rock was actually a 17 pound piece of pure solid gold. Think about that. Farmer Reed actually went back to that creek to look for some more gold and found quite a bit, and it started what was one of the first gold rushes here in America. But I want you just to think about that. A lump of gold being used as a doorstop. Well, in many ways, I think a similar thing has happened to Jesus. In our text, Peter identifies Jesus as the stone that the builders rejected. That was actually the most important stone in God's building, the cornerstone. And today we're going to consider this biblical truth that Jesus is the rock that the church has been built upon, but he's also the rock that our lives are to be built upon. And this is such a rich portion of scripture that we're going to spend two weeks unpacking it. Today we're going to focus on the part of this passage that deals with Jesus as our cornerstone. And then next week we're going to look at the verses that talk about who we are as living stones and a royal priesthood and and his own holy nation. And so I'm going to purposely today kind of gloss over those verses that talk about us so that we can focus our time, you know, entirely upon what this is telling us about Jesus. As Peter's unpacking this, he has a construction zone in mind. It's the, the building of the, the temple is what he's thinking of here. And, and in Israel, the buildings are a lot different than what we, what we build today. You go to Israel on one of our tours and you'll be surprised that you won't find very many um, wood structures at all in the land of Israel. Everything is made out of stone or stone block or hewn stone because stone is the most abundant natural resource in the entire land. Now again, Peter here is writing with the the building of the temple in mind as he gives this analogy. And the temple was made purely of stone. 
But in the midst of what Peter's writing here, he says something that I think we would describe as a paradox. In fact, look at verse 4 again. He says, coming to him as to a living stone. He describes Jesus here as a living stone. Now that's what we would call an oxymoron. Two words that don't go together. Living and stone, they don't go together. It's, it's a contradiction in terms, almost like, you know, government organization. You know, the two, they, they don't go together, right? <laughs> Airplane food, they don't go together. You know, those are what we would call oxymorons. Now, you know, we could talk about a stone and say, you know, cold is stone, and we get that. We understand, you know, cold is stone, but living stone? That doesn't make any sense to us. We don't think of stones as being living. Unless you were living here in the U.S. in right around 1974. You see, in the 1970s, there was a guy by the name of Gary Dahl that came up with a perfect pet. He described it as no messes, no feeding, no allergies. You know where I'm going with this. It was the pet rock. It actually, it came in a box... It had a a little booklet that went with it, and in the booklet it said this, your pet rock will be devoted, a devoted friend and companion for many years to come. Rocks enjoy a rather long lifespan, so the two of you will never have to part, at least not on your pet rock's account. Once you have transcended the awkward training stage, get that, (laughs) your rock will mature into a faithful, obedient, loving pet with but one purpose in life, to be at your side when you want it to, and to go lie down when you don't. Now, everybody who's younger in the audience or watching online is saying, that's the stupidest thing I have ever heard of. Who would buy something like that? They sold millions. The guy literally became a millionaire. Now, here's the moment of truth. How many of you had one of those pet rocks? Come on, let's, let's be honest. All right, you know, down here. How many of you, uh, your parents, or you bought as a parent that for your kids? Any, I think you guys are all too young to, to even be at, at that in this service here. But first service, there was a few of them that were like, yeah, I bought that for my kid. But, but you know... The rock it was. It was a smash hit. No pun intended. Um, but it was, you know, it sold millions. But here we find Peter describing Jesus as a living stone. The pet rock, it, it was dead. It wasn't alive. But G- Peter describes Jesus as this living stone. Why would he use that term? Well, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, Hey, who do men say that I am? What's the word on the street? What are people saying about me? And they said, well, you know, some are saying that you're a prophet. Some think you're Elijah. Some think you're Jeremiah. You know, that's kind of what the word is on the street. And then Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And, you know, that's the most important question that you will ever answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? Well, Peter stood up and he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, I just want you to know, you didn't come up with that. That's something that my father revealed to you. And then Jesus went on to say this. And upon that rock, upon this rock, the rock of that confession of who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God, upon that rock, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know, the picture 
of God as our rock is prevalent throughout Scripture. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Psalm 94, verse 22, he's called the rock of refuge. In Psalm 62, verse 7, he's called the rock of strength. In Psalm 61, verse 2, he's called the rock that is higher than I. And in Psalm 95, verse 1, he's called the rock of our salvation. And all of the scriptures in the Old Testament that point to Jesus or point to God as the rock are, are summed up or brought into to one here by Peter when he says that Jesus is the living stone and he's the cornerstone. You see, in ancient buildings, the cornerstone was the most important part of the entire structure. The cornerstone set the angles for the rest of the building. The cornerstone was at the foundation. It was at the base. Cornerstones were typically the largest and heaviest stones in the building, and they formed the footing for the entire building. And you see, in those days, Israel didn't lay cement slabs like we do today. Now, everything was put together with these hewn stone, these carved out stones. In fact, if we go to Jerusalem, you can find some massive stones there. In fact, there's one at the site of the temple today that some believe could be the cornerstone of the temple. We have a picture of it. This stone that this guy is standing at, it's 39 feet, 4 inches long, 7 feet, 10 inches wide. That's how thick it is. And 43 inches tall. And they say that stone that that man is spanning there, that it weighs 80 tons. But it's not even the biggest stone. You go to the Temple Institute, and we actually go down underground. It's fascinating. And you'll see some stones there. There's one, that picture that we have. Check out this stone. This stone is 41 feet long, 15 feet wide. That's how thick it is. 11 feet tall. It weighs 600 tons. The way that they built you know, their construction and cranes and all of that to move these stones around just absolutely blows my mind. But here's my point. The the cornerstone was the foundation stone that was laid at the corner, and it not only provided for a foundation, but also the measurement of the rest of the entire structure. The cornerstone maintained the symmetry of the rest of the building and set the direction for all sides. And so if one angle of the cornerstone was off, the whole building could be off. If the cornerstone wasn't lined up in in the right place, the building could end up going off in one whole direction, either inward or outward. And so Peter, as he references Jesus here as the cornerstone, it means that everything is resting perfectly upon him. You know, I read this week of a landscape artist, and he paints landscapes with oils, And he said that at the base of his easel, he would always have three stones. He would have there a emerald, a sapphire, and a ruby. And he said he did that simply to bring him back to what was true blue, true green, and true red. He said that when you're involved in painting oil landscapes like he does, after a while you start losing color perception and you need to go back to the reference. You need to go back to a standard. And so he uses these three stones to bring him back to the standard of what's true green, true blue, and true red. Well, so too, in a similar way, we are living 
in the landscape of this fallen world. And it's easy for us to lose our sense of perception in the midst of living in this fallen world where things just get skewed and things are kind of crazy. And that's what Jesus, the cornerstone, does for us. He provides an orientation for our lives. He shows us what true north is so that our church, that the church and our church and our very lives can be built upon the foundation of who he is. Isaiah the prophet, in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, he described Jesus as the tried stone, meaning that he's proven and he's tested. He he said it this way, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. And Peter says that there are two responses to Jesus as the cornerstone. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, Peter is quoting from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that was written hundreds of years before the birth of Christ that was pointing to Jesus who would come as the Messiah. And this is what Peter writes here, quoting from Psalm 118. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, Elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So he says, here's one response. One response to Jesus as the cornerstone is to see him as precious. It's to embrace him. It's to believe in him. And he says, anybody who does that, they won't be put to shame. Whenever we do that, whoever puts their faith and trust in Jesus will discover that in him you have a fortress for your life. You have a refuge. You have a stronghold to hold your life together, a very foundation upon which anything and everything stands in your life. That's one response. The other response, though, is to reject him. Notice he continues, verse 7, therefore... To you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. What Peter had in mind, no doubt, here was the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was that group of ruling elders in Israel. There were 70 of them. And they ruled over the religious system there in Israel. They were the self-imposed builders of God's work here on earth. And they had their own measuring line for measuring who could be the Messiah. They took out their measuring instruments of their own religion and they surveyed Jesus and they surveyed his claims and they, they put him up against their measurements to see if Jesus could be their cornerstone, if he could actually be their Messiah. And after they put him through that scrutiny, they came to the place of deciding and, and it, he doesn't fit, he doesn't qualify. And so they rejected him. And what those men did 2,000 years ago, people are still doing that today. People all over the world look at Jesus, they examine Jesus, they think about him, but most people reject him as being the one that they could build their lives upon. And so they choose to build their lives on something else. They choose to build their life on some other philosophy or some other ideology or some other religion, and they reject Christ. 
But to those who reject Christ, they're going to discover, in the same way the religious leaders did in Jesus' day, that Jesus really wasn't the one that was on trial. They were on trial. It reminded me of a story of two men who were at the famous Louvre Museum there in Paris, France. And these two guys, they were friends, and they were looking at this painting, this work of art. And the one man was kind of scratching his head, and he said to the you know, other guy, he goes, I just don't get it. I don't understand it. Like, what's the attraction? And it was right at that moment that one of the curators of the museum came up and said, excuse me, gentlemen, but that painting is not on trial. You are. They said, this painting, you see, has already passed the test of the experts who have valued it and have deemed it as being a masterpiece. So the painting isn't on trial today. He says, all you're doing is showing the adequacy or the inadequacy of what you think of it. The painting's not on trial. You're on trial. Well, in the same way, like that painting from a great master, Jesus is not on trial but all who look at him are. He's already proven his value. He's already proven that he's the masterpiece and his claims to be the only way to God. And prove that by leaving heaven, coming to this earth, dying on a cross to pay the price for our sins, and then three days later, rising again from the dead. Jesus isn't on trial. It's anyone who looks at him. That's who's on trial. Now, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going to the temple. And they're walking by this man who was lame. He's begging, asking for alms. And Peter says, you know, hey, bro, I don't have anything to give to you. But you know what? I don't have any money. But what I do have, I'm going to give to you. And he grabs him by the hand. He says, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And that man stood and was healed instantly in that moment. Everybody was amazed. And they're like, how did that happen? And they said, you know, it wasn't us. It was the power of Jesus, the resurrected Savior. Well, the religious leaders didn't like them going around telling people that Jesus had risen from the dead, so they arrested them. And they begin to interrogate them, and Peter responds to their interrogation by saying this. When they said, by what power has, has, in what name has this been done? Peter stood up in Acts chapter 4, verse 8, and said, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we say this day... If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. Peter says, you want to know how this was done? It was done through the power of Jesus And then he says, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. And then Peter quotes Psalm 118. The very passage that we're looking at today, he quotes it. Acts chapter 4, verse 11, he said that this is the stone which was rejected, but he adds this, by you builders. (laughs) He makes it personal. The psalmist writing hundreds of years ago, was talking about you guys. He was seeing this day that this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, and nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
Guys, don't miss this. Everything that we believe hinges on these two truths. Number one, that Jesus left heaven and came to this earth to die on a cross to pay the price for our sins. Our sins had separated us from the living God. Our sins had doomed us to spend an eternity separated from God. Jesus has compassion on us. He leaves heaven. He comes to this earth. He dies in our place. He takes our sin upon him that he could put his righteousness on us. That's truth number one. Our sin had to be, a price had to be paid for our sin. Jesus paid the price. Here's truth number two. Jesus, after he died on the cross, didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose again from the dead. And he lives. And he lives to give life to anyone and everyone who would put their faith in him. And here's the thing. All the problems that people have with the Bible get answered in Jesus. Let me give you an example. You know, some people say, I just, I can't believe that Jonah and the whale story. You know, that Jonah was swallowed by a whale, lived three days in the belly of the whale. Well, one, first of all, the Bible doesn't say it was a whale. It says it was a big fish. It might have been a whale, but, you know, but people say, I just can't believe that. That's just impossible. I have no problem with the story of Jonah. You know why? Because Jesus didn't. Jesus spoke of the story of Jonah being swallowed by the big fish as a fact. In fact, he used it as an illustration for the resurrection. He said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the big fish, so will I be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so here's the thing. Jesus can't be right about who he is and be wrong about Jonah. So Jesus proved who he was, that he was the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to the Father, he proved that when he died on the cross and rose again from from the dead. And so Jesus can't be right about who he is and be wrong about Jonah. So I can trust and believe in the story of Jonah because Jesus did. You know, people also today, you know, there's in fact, there's a kind of a new movement out of teaching called deconstructionism claims to be a new thing, but in reality, it's just an old idea with a new name. But there is this move in evangelicalism where they're talking about deconstructing the faith, and they want to peel back the layers of Christianity to see what is true and what is not true. But the problem with this mentality is that they don't start with Jesus. And one of the issues that a lot of the people that are proposing this have is that is the whole concept of hell. They, they can't understand how a loving God could regulate people to spend an eternity in hell. And so they wrestle with that. I have no problem with hell. You know why? Jesus didn't. Jesus spoke about hell more than heaven. You know why? Because Jesus knew that real people were going to go there. And he didn't want him to go there. And so he warned people that he didn't want them to go to, to hell, that that's why he left heaven and came to this earth, was to rescue people from their sin and from spending an eternity in hell being separated from God. And so I have no problem because, listen, Jesus can't be right about who he said he was and be wrong about hell. No, he was right about who he said he was. He proved that. He was right about hell. People say, oh, you don't know the whole idea about the, the flood and the world being flooded or, you know, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed because of their immorality. Jesus spoke of those things as facts, as true things that happened. 
And so everything that we believe, it hinges upon this. This is what makes Jesus the cornerstone is the resurrection. The fact that he rose again from the dead. The fact that there's an empty tomb means that we can believe everything that he said. And so Peter was saying to the Sanhedrin that day in the book of Acts what that curator of the museum said to those two men. Hey, listen, Jesus isn't on trial today. You are. There was an elementary school teacher who stood before her class one day and decided that she wanted them all to know that she was an atheist. And so she said, hey, I just want you guys all to know that I'm an atheist. And then she asked, how many of you are atheists? These little kids didn't even know what an atheist was. But they shot their hands up because they wanted to please their teacher. All except for this one little girl named Lucy. Lucy didn't raise her hand. And the teacher said, Lucy, what's, what's wrong with you? And she says, well, I'm not an atheist. And she says, you're not. What are you? She says, well, I'm a Christian. And she says, well, why are you a Christian? And she said, well, I was raised to love Jesus and to believe in Jesus. And my mommy was a Christian and my daddy was a Christian. And so I'm a Christian. And the teacher really got upset with her logic and said, well, what if your mommy and daddy were idiots? Then what would you be? And with a smile on her face, Lucy said, an atheist. (laughs) Listen, all of us in this room are building our lives on something. Jesus told the parable of the builders. He said two men went to build houses. They're both smart guys. They wanted they built their house, you know, by the ocean, ocean front ocean front property. But Jesus said one of the guys was a foolish builder and the other guy was a wise builder. He said the foolish builder was the one who built his house on the sand. And the problem was, is when the wind and waves came, when the storms hit, and the storms always hit, the storms always come. Some of you are in the midst of storms right now. They always come. He said when the storms hit up against his house, it crumbled because it wasn't built on a sure foundation. It was built on shifting sand. And so it crumbled. He said the other man, though, was a wise builder. He built his house upon a rock. And when the wind and waves came and beat up against his house, his house stood because of what it was built upon. It was built upon a sure, solid foundation, the rock. And then Jesus explained which builder was which. He said, the foolish builder is the one who hears my words, but doesn't put them into practice. He's the one who hears the word of God and it just goes into his head, but never into his heart, never becomes a part of his life. He said, that's the foolish builder who builds his house on the sand. But the wise builder is the one who hears my word and he puts it into practice. It goes from his head to his heart and gets worked out in his life. He said, that's the man who has built his house upon the rock. And I ask you today, what's your life being built upon? What's your family being built upon? Your answer to that question is going to be in your response to God's word. Does God's word form the basis of all that you do? Is your marriage today, for those of you who are married, is your marriage today being built upon God's word? What's the basis of it? Is it God's word or is it family traditions? Why do you guys do that? I don't know, my family it's part of you know, our tradition. We do that. We respond in that type of way. 
Is it built on God's word or pop psychology? How about how you raise your kids? Is that built on secular parenting from the quote-unquote experts, or is it built upon God's word? What about the way that you approach your finances and how you spend your money? Is there any thought to, hey, I wonder what God's word has to say about this? Listen, those who are living with Jesus as their cornerstone, their lives are going to be built upon who he is and what he says. What's your life? What's your marriage being built upon today? One last analogy and we'll be done. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 26, we're told this. The badgers are not mighty folk, yet they make their houses in the rocks. We could learn a lot from the rock badger. This small animal, also called the coney or the hyrex, knows where to go when danger comes. They make their home in the rocks. So if an eagle swoops down and tries to capture him, that little animal is protected by the rock. The eagle would literally have to tear apart the whole mountain to get to its prey. What a beautiful picture. The Bible says that in Christ, our lives are protected by Jesus, our rock. And nothing and no one can stand and come against him to get to us. You know, if the lion is out on the prowl looking for lunch, the badger goes undetected up in the rocks. In fact, the color of his fur kind of blends in with the rocks. He's safe there. He's secure there. Now, as long as he's hiding in the rock, he's safe. But if he wanders out into the grassland, well, he could be dead meat. He could be lion lunch for that day. Now what's interesting, the badger is wise enough to know that his strength lies not in working out at the gym, but in taking shelter in the rock. The badger's strength consists, get this, of renouncing self. It's the realization, hey, I don't have what it takes to stand up against the lion or the eagle. I need to hide in the rock. We need to learn from that because a lot of times, you know what we do? We, we think that we're stronger than we are. Listen, you, the Bible describes Satan as a raging, roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and you by yourself are no match for him. You aren't. But how many of us try to go out into our day thinking, I can do this, I got this, and then we get our butts kicked by the devil. Now, the Bible says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Our lives have to be hidden in, resting in the rock of ages, our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you resting in the rock today? Is your life being built upon the rock today? You know, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says, our rock is not like their rock. And it's not talking about our music. It's talking about our, our Savior, you see, people in the world, they, they're building their lives on so many other things that are false and faulty foundations. But we have in Jesus a rock that is secure and strong and mighty, that is a stronghold and a fortress and a refuge, who is ready, who says, notice it starts off in verse 4, coming to him. That's where it starts. We come to him. We come to that place of realizing, hey, you're where the one my life needs to be built upon. You're the one that I need to hide in. Take me 
as the psalmist said, to the rock who is higher than I. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the rock that is higher than I. That you are that firm foundation upon which our lives are built. And Lord, I pray today that all of us here who do know you, that we would examine our hearts today to to see, is my life, is my marriage, is my family, is it built upon the rock of who Jesus is and what he said? Lord, we, we want you to be. We know that you're the cornerstone of the church, that all of this crumbles without you, but Lord, we want you to be the cornerstone of our lives. But Lord, I also pray for those here in this room and those watching online who maybe don't have that relationship with you. Lord, as we read today, that it's in your name, the only name, upon which a man can be saved, a woman could be saved, a child could be saved. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you're watching online, you don't have that relationship with him, I want to encourage you today to cry out to him and just say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, I want you to be my rock. And allow him today to fill you, to save you, to bring life to you. And as we go forward this week, and we check ourselves, to see, to know, to have that assurance that our life is built upon the rock of who Jesus is. Built upon his word. Trusting in him. Clinging to him. Believing in him. That we would find in Jesus a precious stone. Living, available, alive in Jesus name Amen